The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is Richard M. Eaton, Professor of History at the University of Arizona. His book, India in the Persianate Age, 1000 to 1765, is among the titles shortlisted for this year's Kuntil History Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Richard to find out why he thinks we need to shift our understanding of India's history. Your book, uh, India in the Persianate Age, covers a vast expanse of time and space, And it might seem slightly uh, counterproductive, but I wondered if we could start by talking about some of the misconceptions that your book sets out to kind of rectify, both in terms of India's position in the world and India's history more generally. Well, I guess the, you know, like any, all historians are essentially in the business of revising uh, earlier historians or earlier understandings of the past. And... I was asked by Penguin to write this book, and I originally wrote it thinking it was basically a textbook covering 800 years of of history. But the deeper I got into writing it, the more I realized that uh, what I was really doing was was radically reinterpreting uh, the way in which India has been conventionally understood, the history of India. In particular, this middle period, the so-called middle period of Indian history, stretching from roughly 1,000 to to 1,800. This period has been conventionally called the the Muslim period of Indian history, uh, which began with the so-called Muslim conquest of India uh, around the early end of the 12th century. This whole portrayal of India's middle period as being one dominated by Muslim rule, as if religion was the central axis through which to to see Indian history, I came to understand as fundamentally flawed. Flawed largely because it's 
seems to be more of a retrospective or vision looking backwards uh, into Indian history from our present day vantage point, where we are kind of in the 20th century and 21st century, very carefully tuned to religion, looking at Indian past through the axis of religious issues and religious questions. And I discovered that as I was reading deeper and deeper into, into Indian history from the 11th century forward, that that really was not the central issue. For example, the Sharia, or Muslim law, we now think of it as Islamic law. Well, in fact, the Sharia was used by Hindus as much as it was by Muslims, and the word Sharia really meant little more than legal. It was only in the 19th and 20th century, actually the 18th century, late 18th century on, uh, that the word took on a, a rather exclusive connotation. Another way of, of thinking about this is that in the, when, when the Muslim Turks first arrived in India uh, in the 11th, 12th centuries, uh, they were not known as Muslims by the Hindus who were already living there, but rather they were, they were called Turk or Turushka in Sanskrit. And so it was examples like this that kind of gave me the, a clue that, that I needed to find some other way of thinking about Indian time rather than simply uh, projecting the year 1947 backwards. 1947 was when the British left. And with independence, you had these two independent states, Pakistan and India. Pakistan defined explicitly along religious lines. So my book is an attempt to rectify what I see as a deep misunderstanding of eight centuries of Indian time and look at it rather through the lens of Persian literature, Persian language, and Persian culture more broadly understood. And that is the central insight of my book. You write that we should instead see this history in terms of the prolonged and multifaceted interaction between the Sanskrit and Persian at worlds. Now, there's some people who, for whom those terms may not be that familiar. Um, what do we mean when we say Sanskrit in this context? That's a very good question. Well, we already have words like uh, Hispanic, which refers to the broader culture derived from, from Spanish language and Spanish literature. We have the word Germanic. Uh, which re refers to the broader culture that is kind of spun off of G German language and German literature. We have the word Italianate. You can go down the list, and there are many instances where, we can, where we, we've already uh, used adjectives like this. I mean, the word Persianate is simply an adjectival construction from the language Persian, in the same way that, uh, say, Hellenic uh, derived from the Greek or Germanic from the German, and so forth. So what I mean by this term, therefore, is the whole tradition of, of texts written in the Persian language which became normative, which were understood as normative across a vast swathe of territory from the Balkans uh, moving across the Iranian plateau through Central Asia, including South Asia, indeed including much of Southeast Asia, it was across this terrain that Persian texts circulated, moving from court to court, from uh, Sufi Khanga to Khanga or Laj, through various institutions. Uh, the, the, these texts were read, reread, memorized, passed on 
from hand to hand, and in, gradually and slowly, Persian ideas, as well as indeed Persian words and language, began to seep into vernacular tongues, stretching all the way from Anatolia uh, across into Southeast Asia. That process was well examined by a, uh, a colleague of mine, Sheldon Pollock, who had this notion of a Sanskrit cosmopolis, by which he meant the idea of uh, Sanskrit literature diffusing across a vast stretch of territory from Afghanistan, uh, again through Southeast Asia, where once again you have an elite language, a prestigious language, which was used for the purpose of maintaining a, a, a sense of proper social order as well as moral order. I think of Persianate and Sanskritic as two parallel transregional languages. Transregional in the sense that these languages both traveled across regions, above, as it were, regional languages. And it was the interaction not only between the two transregional languages, but also the interaction between these languages and their vernacular counterparts. Uh, that seems to be the kind of the key insight that Pollock had and which I then kind of transferred to the idea of Persianate. And what I discovered was that India happened to be the one part of the world where the Sanskrit and the Persianate overlapped and crossed. And that indeed became the, a central idea, a central kind of informing notion uh, that carried the, the, the entire project. And these two cultures, the Persianate and the Sanskrit, embraced a whole range of people of different backgrounds, didn't they? They did indeed. That's kind of the, a key insight, I think, as well, because it explains why it is uh, that these languages were able of, of, of traveling so far. Neither language was tied down by any ethnic identity. You could be a Turk, you could be a Mongol, you could be an Indian, you could be a, a Malay speaker, uh, you could be any number of ethnic identities and still subscribe to this language and learn the language, whether it be Sanskrit or Persian. That notion of a trans-regional language, which of course is not confined to Persian and Sanskrit, the same thing was true with Latin, uh, the same thing was true with Greek. Uh, one thinks of the uh, Hellenistic world after Alexander the Great, where the Greek language, Greek culture, Greek literature, Greek sculpture, was diffused across the entire Mediterranean basin into Central Asia. And that idea then of a cosmopolis, of a, of a world informed by literature, rather than by raw power, that is another key insight. The, the Persianate world and the Sanskritic world, or the Sanskrit cosmopolis, was not held together by force. Uh, there was no capital city, there was no army, uh, there was no central organizing institution. There were no fortified frontiers. Uh, but rather, we need to think in terms of an uh, intellectual world, a world informed by ideas that, that traveled across the top of other states and other regions and other vernacular language zones. Your book obviously covers a, a huge expanse of time. What was the situation when we kick off, sort of in 1,000 to 1,200? I began the, with the year 1,000 or 1,200 because that was when the number of Turkish-speaking groups first conquered North India. 
And this date of 1000, uh, or more properly perhaps 1200, uh, is when you first get rule by Turkish groups in North India. There's a tradition of Turkish-speaking groups who have come into India, who are first raiding India from around 1000, but from 1200, uh, they established themselves as permanent rulers. This is the reason why the word Muslim rule or Muslim age is identified with the same period from 1200 forward. So I'm using the same basic chronology from 1000 or 1200 forward to, the, to 1765, which of course is when the British uh, acquire hegemony in, in India. But I'm not framing it through a political lens. It just happens that this is when the Persian influence is carried into North India. It's carried by Turks. So what we have is a political conquest from 1200 forward, but the conquest is, is carried on by Turkish speakers who have already been Persianized. Turkish was their own native language. They had learned Persian, they had assimilated Persian ideas, Persian notions of architecture, uh, literature, and so forth, and that, that was all carried in North India by them. So the year 1000, that's when Mahmud of Ghazni, uh, the first Turk who really began raiding India, that date 1000 is very important from that standpoint. But I also begin the book by looking at another raid, which occurred around the same period of time, a raid of Bengal, or Eastern India, by Hindu rulers of South India, the Cholas. I compare the, the uh, conquest of Bengal by Indians of the South, the Cholas, with the conquest of North India by the Turks as a way of entering this whole project. So the year 1000 is a convenient date because it sees two conquests, one by a Hindu dynasty in South India conquering the north, and another, a Turkish clan that moves in from, the, from Afghanistan. One of the central sort of figures in your book is that of the Sultan. Um, how did the sort of crystallization of the idea of what a Sultan was uh, in the 10th and 11th centuries uh, change the society around it? The idea of the Sultan is a, it's a fascinating uh, question. Uh, the word Sultan is actually Arabic, and, and we don't find it being used by Turks until the beginning of the 11th century. But when it is used, uh, it has a very particular meaning. Uh, this was a period of time, the 11th century, when Turkish groups were seizing power in the eastern portion of the Abbasid Caliphate, which is to say much of Central Asia and the Iranian plateau today. This was a time when these upstart groups, or Turkish groups, having seized power, used the word sultan to make a claim to what I would call a secular rule. I use the word secular in the sense that these sultans were theoretically under the authority of the Islamic caliph in Baghdad. So what you have is a de facto separation of authority, whereby the caliph retained authority in matters of religion, of Islam, and the sultan was the de facto ruler, uh, the, the, the man who, who, who uh, collected the revenue, who, who maintained uh, armies, 
established the state, and was understood as the supreme ruler. But very interestingly, although the word sultan is an Arabic word, the kind of mystique of the sultan drew upon much earlier Persian ideas of the Shah, or the Shahinshah, the king of kings. And this takes us all the way back to the ancient Persian empire. And these sultans, uh, as they emerge in the 11th, 12th, and 13th century, are quite self-consciously and deliberately drawing upon ancient Persian ideas of kingship. So that by the time the sultan idea reaches India in the 12th and 13th centuries, it has already picked up these ancient Persian ideas of an, of an absolute monarch, the whole mystique of the, the crown, the scepter, the, the throne, the idea of a hereditary monarchy, the idea that the, the Shah and Shah is the, is the shadow of God. All of these ideas are then imported to North India by way of these Turks. And it's very important to remember, it seems to me here, that since the Sultan was identified juxtaposed to the Caliph, who was the religious authority, the Sultan did not necessarily convey the idea of Islamic power or Islamic authority, quite the contrary. Uh, we have the idea of a Sultan as a ruler of all subjects, regardless of what their religion might happen to be. This idea of a, of a Sultan as a non-religious figure was so important that it meant that even non-Muslims could uh, claim the title of Sultan, which is exactly what does happen in India. Uh, we find in the 13th and 14th centuries a number of states popping up in various parts of India where the Hindu ruler would claim to be uh, a, a Sultan. And that, it seems to me, is rather dramatic proof or dramatic evidence that the word Sultan had been kind of drained from any explicit association with the Islamic religion and had come to mean simply a, the most powerful term that one could imagine for a ruler. Were there any particularly powerful or influential sultanates and why did they eventually decline? The, yes, the, the first major sultanate which appears in India is the Ghaznavids. Now this is a sultanate which appeared in the in the early 11th century. It was an offshoot of an earlier sultanate in Central Asia, the Samanid Sultanate. And your question as to why they decline uh, is a very important one because what, what the, the idea of the sultan, although the sultan claims to be, have absolute authority and absolute rule, he necessarily needs a large number of, uh, of nobles, known as iktadars, and Iqtadar was simply a person who was stationed throughout the Sultanate to collect revenue and maintain a specified number of troops, which would be on, on call for the Sultan upon demand. And these Iqtadars swore loyalty to the Sultan. But what often happened was, if an Iqtadar was far enough away from the capital, he might claim to be a Sultan himself, if he could get away with it. And indeed, the first major sultanate that appears in Indian history, the, the Ghaznavids, was inherited, or was derived from one of these earlier larger sultanates, the Samanid of Central Asia. So 
the Ghaznavid Sultanate was established by a former Samanid Iqtadar, or, or general, comes to India. And these sultanates were by nature brittle. What I mean by that is, although they have, were very elastic, uh, they, they had no necessarily boundaries in terms of space, uh, they could expand as far as it was, they were able to uh, uh, collect revenue. Further they went from the capital, so the more possible it was that one of these Iqtadars could maintain or, or claim to be a sultan himself. And this is, I think, the underlying explanation as to why they, they declined. You could argue that, in a sense, they did not so much decline as simply hive off into some new sultanate somewhere else. So the, the idea of a sultan, an absolute ruler, would be inherited by Iqtadars, and many of these sultans were nothing more than former Iqtadars of a previous sultanate. So there's a kind of a self-generating process by which new sultanates appear uh, on the edges or on the frontiers of earlier sultanates. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So by understanding the past in non-religious terms, namely Persianate Sanskritic, I think one can indeed restructure and reform and rethink how we envision the present day. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You mentioned at the start how important culture and cultural transmission was in this story. Are there any particular examples of literature or architecture or any other art forms that you think are particularly revealing in this, in this story? Uh, yes, and it ties directly into the notion of what the Sultanate is all about. Many of these rulers, many of the sultans in Central Asia and then later on in India, had acquired power, uh, let us say, by not, not, by not so much through legal means, many of them had seized power, and therefore, in order to justify their rule, one of the things they did was to patronize poets, patronize architects, uh, patronize historians, uh, patronize literati of all sorts, because this was seen as a means of establishing one's right to rule. If you were a, a sultan with rather shaky claims to authority, you, you, you didn't inherit the role, uh, you seized power. One of the ways you, you overcame this was by surrounding yourself with uh, literati, Persian-speaking or Persian-knowing literati, uh, architects, poets, musicians, and so forth. And this was a means of overcoming a sense of insecurity or illegitimacy, I would say. So Persian culture diffused throughout India largely by sultans who themselves were not understood as legitimate. 
and needed to have some means of overcoming that sense of illegitimacy. So in this way, Persian ideas of, of, uh, of poetry, of music, uh, and so forth gets diffused. Very important in this story is to mention that the Persian language was also understood as a language of administration. Uh, and this goes way back to, really, uh, ancient Persian empires in Iran itself, uh, where you have dynasty after dynasty coming and going, but what stays constant is a professional class of scribes. And these scribes are trained to the, the, the technology of revenue collection, uh, of administering justice, and although the dynasties come and go, a class of scribes would remain. So the idea of Persian as a language of bureaucracy, of administration, is very important because as the idea of the Sultanate diffuses throughout India, so does the idea of Persian as a language of administration. As the Persianate age advances in India, so also does a this idea of, of a class of, of administrators, of uh, revenue collectors and, and so forth. And the, the technique of administration, very tightly identified with, with Persian culture, uh, this diffuses across India. And one of the things that is so important, I think, to understand is that uh, many Indians, in order to get a job in the bureaucracy, had to learn Persian. So we have a huge class of uh, various Hindu uh, writers' communities would learn Persian and in this way gain employment in the government. So Persian language is central not only as a carrier of culture but also as a means of employment and therefore a means by which uh, non-Muslims, Indians of all sorts, uh, gain access to power. Uh, and that's a very important point, it seems to me, in, in explaining the, the, the diffusion of Persian culture across India. Talking about power, in the 14th century, one of the key figures in your book, uh, Tima, emerges. What's his role in your story, um, and how did he shape the world around him? Well, Timur was a warlord uh, who, in the late 14th century, acquired power in Central Asia, married into some of the last remnants of the Mongol Empire. Now, you understand that the Mongols had already swept across much of Asia by this time. But by the age of Timur, the late 14th century, the Mongol Empire had more or less already uh, disappeared and crumbled. And so what Timur really represents is an effort to create a neo-Mongol empire, if you will. And Timur himself was one of these extraordinary figures in world history. Uh, no question about it, very charismatic, had a, had a very effective way of, of galvanizing supporters around him. And he mobilized sources in Central Asia, resources, that enabled him to humble a large number of, of peoples and, and, and small states stretching all the way from the Mediterranean to India and indeed across Central Asia as well. His capital was in Samarkand. Timur was one of the extraordinary figures in world history in part because he, as I mentioned earlier, was one of these figures who, in order to justify his claim to power, latched on to Persian language and Persian culture. 
and employed the very best of, of, of Persian artisans, Persian architects, uh, Persian literati, and he was determined to make his capital in Central Asia, the capital city of Samarkand, uh, the most splendid capital in the world. So he would bring to Samarkand the finest artisans, architects, and so forth, who build these stupendous monuments. He really inaugurated a, a, a style of architecture which was characterized by spectacular glazed tiles, was characterized by freestanding huge monuments which uh, could be seen from miles and miles away. And the architecture itself expressed power. So as Timur expanded, as his armies expanded, so did his understanding of, of high culture. He himself, of course, conquers Delhi. He doesn't stay in India. He arrives there at the very end of the 14th century in 1398-99, sacks the city, goes back to Samarkand, but he leaves behind uh, a memory of, of uh, invincible power and fabulous wealth. So you have a number of rulers across India, after Timur has left India, who are trying to imitate his style, imitate his authority, and you see all these other little cities popping up across India, which are using Timurid notions of architecture, Timurid notions of glazed tile and so forth. It seems to me that even though Timur never stayed in India, the idea of, of Timur as this kind of ultimate Persian king uh, and sultan uh, diffuses across the territory and, and long outlasts his own brief reign. He died in 1405 on his way to China. Didn't, he didn't manage to get there, but he did manage to conquer a, a good part of the known world. And so Timur, uh, like Alexander, represents this idea of world conqueror, which would then persist across India for centuries and animate the, the, the imagination and the ambitions of, of many followers, many uh, rulers in, in India later on. The next section of your book then uh, considers the Mughal Empire, which I imagine is something that some listeners have heard of. What's your take on this period of history and how do you think it fits into this wider story? Well, the Mughals, of course, really represent, in a sense, the height of uh, the Persianate world, uh, so far as India is concerned, the very word Mughal uh, is itself identified with with bigness, largeness, and uh, this goes back to the explorations of India by Europeans who began arriving in the really from the very beginning of the Mughal period in the 16th century, who would carry back from India back to Europe uh, the impressions of this the the vast power and authority which they saw. Uh, expressed by the Mughal rulers. To me, to answer your question, what makes the Mughals so distinctive is that although they were a dynasty that had originated in Central Asia, uh, although they had originated in, uh, on land power based on cavalry, when they come to India, what you really see with the Mughals is a merging of two different worlds. A Central Asian world where power is understood as something that is uh, very mobile, uh, mainly, mainly through cavalry, where wealth also is mobile because these were, the Mughals had come from pastoral peoples who moved with their sheep and their goats and their horses and their camels 
and wealth was understood as something which moved. And they come to India and they encounter a world in which wealth was static, uh, was stored up in temples, which were well endowed with, uh, with land, a world that was agricultural and not pastoral, where wealth was understood in terms of grain. And so what the Mughals really represent is a merging of these two different worlds, a pastoral world of Central Asia where wealth was mobile, and an agricultural or agrarian world of India where wealth was fixed. As we look at the Mughal Empire from its founder, Babur, who conquers North India in 1526, and we go all the way down to into the 18th century, what we see is an empire which gradually becomes more and more agrarian and more and more Indian. It's, it's a process which is seen not only in ecological terms, but also in political and cultural terms. Uh, the Mughals patronize the warrior elites of North India, which is to say the Rajputs. And in doing so, there is an extraordinarily interesting conversion between Rajput culture and Mughal culture. The, Mughal, the, the Emperor Akbar in particular is noted for his patronage of Rajput architecture, as well as Rajput kings uh, in, in North India. What we see, seems to me, is the Mughals, although we call them, and they've been continually called a Muslim dynasty, in fact, they become more and more ethnically, or at least culturally, Rajput. They adopt Rajput style of, of self-presentation, the way in which the Mughal emperor, for example, presented himself before his people, leans on symbols and uh, notions of authority which come directly out of Rajput culture. For example, the tradition of presenting oneself at dawn as the sun is rising before one's population, it's called a darshana, where one is seated above the, the ground level and the people are below. This is very much an, an Indian and more specifically Rajput political institution, which was simply taken over by the Mughals. The Mughals are fascinating from several standpoints. One, as I said, the standpoint of seeing how an originally Central Asian pastoral culture is merging with an Indian agrarian culture. Number two, how the Mughals are becoming part of a larger world order where the Mughals are, uh, once they conquer Gujarat, uh, they see for the first time the Indian Ocean and they become integrated into much larger maritime networks of trade and commerce. So that India now becomes the center of a, of a large global system. Of course, that's a theme that, that carries through the, my whole book. But with the Mughals, this is much more dramatically vivid than any time earlier. Major seaports like Surat in Gujarat or, or Chittagong in Bengal and, and Hooghly, which later becomes Calcutta, these seaports are now linking the Mughal Empire with vast maritime networks that stretch across the entire Indian Ocean. So the Mughals also mean a moment when India is becoming very tightly integrated with the world system. This is also when Indian textiles become diffused throughout the world in the Mughal age. It is because of Indian textiles, as we see in the Mughal period, that Europeans are first attracted to India. And all of that, of course, uh, follows in suit. So the Mughal age can be seen from a variety of perspectives. 
I think the most important one, though, for me, that in, in my view, is to see the Mughals gradually becoming more and more Indian throughout the, the three centuries of their rule. Uh, they become Indian in the sense that uh, they adopt Rajput notions of kingship. They become Indian in the sense that they uh, acquire Indian conceptions of, of, uh, of revenue collection and agrar agrarian wealth and so forth. So those are some of the ways in which I think the Mughal Empire can be understood in terms of its own significance in India. We then, as you mentioned, head into the 18th century when India's become increasingly integrated into networks of global commerce and trade. Um, I had only ever heard this story about the, the arrival of the East India Company from a Western point of view. How does looking at it from an Indian point of view change perspective on it? Well, one of the major themes of my book is this notion of the military labor market. Now, what I mean by that is that ever since at least the 15th century, what we see in India is a pattern by which upstart rulers, in order to acquire power, would buy military labor. Military labor being basically peasants or villagers who, when the crops are have already come in, or when there's off-season for agriculture, there's very little to do in one village. One rents out one's military labor to whoever wants it. And so chieftains would buy military labor in the sense that they would pay for large numbers of, of peasants during the military season to expand their own states. And the rise and fall of states throughout Indian history, one way of seeing all this, is to see it through the lens of the military labor market. To give you one example, one of the most important chieftains of India, Sher Shah, starts out as a very minor Afghan chieftain in Bihar and Bengal in eastern India. He acquires a certain amount of wealth with which he buys the labor or military labor, hires these peasants uh, who serve him as, as, as infantry, and by paying them, they serve him. And a very important idea here, that this, these are basically mercenaries. Throughout much of Indian history, there is no sense of nationalism or fighting for one's, one's land or one's nation. What you fight for is whoever pays you the most amount of money, the highest amount of money. And so these chieftains, like Sher Shah, were able to accumulate vast power in fact, Sher Shah himself overthrew the second emperor of the Mughal Empire, Humayun, kicked him out of India altogether, by using this idea of the military labor market. So when the Europeans arrive in India, what's interesting to me is that they buy themselves into the same market. They use the idea of, of the military labor market in order to acquire military power, by which I mean uh, what they would do is hire Indian mercenaries to fight their wars for them. The French began doing this already in the 18th century. The, uh, the British simply followed suit. It was discovered that Europeans were dying at an at a unacceptably high rate due to the tropical diseases, and it made more sense to simply hire Indian labor. You clothe them, uh, you train them in uh, European military techniques, yeah, you give them proper meals, and you, tr you create the, the, the idea of the sepoy. 
Well, this idea was actually something that Indians had been doing for centuries before. So when the East India Company comes to India, what they're really doing is adopting an Indian conception of, of military recruitment. And the rise of the East India Company can be seen from an Indian perspective, at least, as simply one more group which is playing the same game. And this is one of the reasons, it seems to me, why the East India Company was able to acquire power so, so quietly, almost below the radar of many Indian rulers, precisely because they were doing the same thing which Indians had been doing all along, exploiting the Indian idea of a military labor market where one is not necessarily loyal to any ethnic uh, group or religious community. One is loyal merely to your paymaster. That, it seems to me, is a uniquely Indian conception which Europeans simply bought into. Your book ends in 1765. Why did you decide to conclude at that point? A good question. 1765 was the year that the British were able to obtain the right to collect revenue in Bengal. Uh, it's called the Divani. And the Divani simply refers to the revenue department. Uh, the word Divan uh, referred specifically to the collector of the revenue collector of a given province. And the Divani is refers to the right to collect revenue. And I chose that date because 1765 was the year when the East India Company acquired clear dominance in India, after which there would be a new dispensation in terms of political power. That does not mean, however, that the Persian age had ended. Persian continued to be used throughout India, and indeed the British themselves administered much of India through the Persian language. And they continued to do so all the way through into the deep into the 19th century. Uh, it was not until 1835 that Persian was officially replaced by English uh, as the language of power administration. So one could say that, in a sense, uh, the Persian age outlasts the period of my book. Indeed, it goes even beyond 1835. Persian continued to be used and patronized uh, by the Mughals all the way down to 1858 when they are finally overthrown. But even after that, Persian continues. This all, however, begins to go downhill very quickly in the year 1765 with the acquisition of the revenue collecting rights by the East India Company in Bengal. So I chose the year 1765 precisely because that was when the political landscape of India underwent a dramatic change. And really, in retrospect, one can see that from that date forward, uh, the Mughal Empire was, was reduced to a, a shadow of its former self, even though the Persian language continued to be used and patronized by the, by the company itself deep into the, into the 19th century. Finally then, do you think that understanding the period of history your book covers can help us get a better understanding of the region today? I do. And the reason I say that is today we understand this region largely through the, the lens of religious conflict and religious uh, interaction. Uh, we have two nuclear states, Pakistan and India, that have already fought three wars with each other. 
the difference between these states is largely understood as one of religion, increasingly so, especially now that India is ruled by a Hindu nationalist party, uh, the BJP, under Prime Minister Modi. Because uh, there is this movement to make India a Hindu state, with Pakistan already legally an Islamic state, there is a tendency to see India, and not only present-day India, but Indian history through the lens of religion. What I'm trying to do is to reframe the whole, reframe the entire discussion from a vision of India as uh, an area where religion had always been the, the fundamental leitmotif, as if Islam and Hinduism had been at loggerheads for eight centuries, and reframe that into an entirely different understanding of how Indian history can be understood. To see India as through the lens of Sanskrit and Persian is very different from seeing India through the lens of Hinduism and Islam. And I think that has a great deal to do with the present day because how we view the past oftentimes informs how we view the present. And the present day, as we know, is charged with the notion of Hindu-Muslim interaction, if not Hindu-Muslim conflict. And that conflict is oftentimes understood as being an outcome or an outgrowth of centuries of Hindu-Muslim conflict. In reality, the past did not see that kind of religious conflict that is oftentimes attributed to it. So by understanding the past in non-religious terms, namely Persian Sanskritic, I think one can indeed restructure and reform and rethink how we envision the present day. That was Richard M. Eaton. India in the Persianate Age, 1000 to 1765, is out now, published by Penguin. It's one of the books shortlisted for this year's Kundal History Prize. The finalists will be announced at 6pm tomorrow, the 20th of October. So head over to kundalprize.com to find out more. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow we'll be talking to Camilla Townsend, another of the shortlisted authors, about her new take on the Aztecs. (laughs)